Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's episode is sponsored by SKP Creative. If you're having a hard time making social media work for your business, and trust me, as a social media professional myself, it is complicated, then you might be overwhelmed by trying to figure it out on your own. But SKP Creative specializes in social media. They use data-driven communication strategies to help your business grow and thrive. Visit skpcreative.com today to learn more and schedule a free social media evaluation for your business. SKP Creative. Make it happen. Today's guest is Karen Welch. Now, Karen is a senior content producer for Panhandle PBS, the PBS member station associated with Emerald College. She's been at that role since 2015, but before that, Karen spent 26 years as a reporter and feature writer for the Amarillo Globe News. Karen is super smart. She's one of the best working journalists in the panhandle right now. Locally, much of her beat over the past couple of decades, whether it was the newspaper or at Panhandle PBS, has included the city government and the business world here in Amarillo. So more than just about anyone else in the city She has her pulse on what's happening around here. So I think you'll enjoy this episode. Here's Karen Welch. Karen Welch, welcome to the Hamrilla Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason Boyett. Well, I I want to talk about what you're doing at Panhandle PBS. I want to talk about your career. But before we get to any of that stuff, I'd like to know how you ended up here in the first place. So tell me what brought you to Amarillo. I was born at the old Northwest Texas Hospital. So Okay, so like birth brought <laughs> the you here. The stork brought me here, right? <laughs> um, yeah, born and raised in Amarillo. Uh, lived a couple of years in California after college. But Amarillo is my home. It's where my family is. Um, and it's also where I knew the most and wanted to know the most about my community. Where did you go to high school? I uh, went to Tascosa. Okay. So I'm a rebel. And then after high school, what did you do? I went to West Texas State University okay. then. Now it's A&M. So um, it was a good place to get my start. I was there as the editor of the newspaper at the time when there were a, was a lot of uh, serious things going on with the administration. Um, we had a president who was build. They were building his house, and it had double the cost uh, and we reported on that. Um, we had so like actual investigative journalism yes, as a student. Yes, we had uh, the faculty senate um, doing their votes of no confidence for the president, and someone was creating a uh, an editorial cartoon uh, about the president and all this politics going on, and they were dropping it off in a mailbox of one of my staffers, uh, and we would publish it, and I would go see the president every week because we published another one and he wanted to tell me it was difficult to see how I might graduate. Wow. But uh, he, that was important at the time. And, uh, and he has since moved on. It was a president quite a while back, but the idea that students can't do journalism or can't do serious journalism is, is not true. I mean, there are opportunities to do that sort of thing. Not every story will be that. But it's a good training ground. Did you always want to get into journalism? I mean, was that always a career goal for you? or? Well, early on, writing was a career goal. I, I wrote stories that my mom still has in a box from third grade. So I can tell you that 
you know, the mother's box is full of these things where you had to draw a picture and then write a story about the picture. Um, but then as I went along and got into junior high, I was on um, the school's newspaper in seventh grade. Okay. It just, it's ingrained in me. I'm nosy. I like to ask questions. I like to know or understand the processes of what's going on. I like to understand how it affects me or affects somebody else. And I was born into a family of news junkies. Okay. I can remember when I was a kid watching um, the conventions, the GOP and the Democratic conventions for, for president. It was just something that was going to be on and in our house, in my grandparents' house, in my great aunt's house, wherever I was, uh, in my home. My mom is mostly on CNN or other news channels or um, in the network news or weather channels most of the time. So she is uh, very definitely a news junkie and kind of ingrained it in me. And you said you went to California. I did. I did. Was that right after graduation Um, from WT? It wasn't. No, I was in Amarillo for a while. I worked about uh, four years for the newspaper here and then moved to California. Um, My husband at the time was in the Navy. And so that was a real big change. It was great because I worked for um, conglomerations of community newspapers Mm -hmm. where they covered different regions in San Diego um, the whole county. Okay. Um, and so you saw what was happening in different neighborhoods and how their issues and their desires were different than somebody in, in another community. So it, it was good training ground to continue doing the work that I had started doing at the Globe when I, when I began. Tell me about coming back to Amarillo after having lived outside for a while, because one of the things, and I've had conversations like this with people, that it's good for a community to have people move away and see how life is done somewhere else, see what kinds of businesses are being introduced somewhere else, see what the culture is like, and then bring that back here. Because we are so isolated, you know. Right. Tell me tell me what maybe what you learned or what you found moving away and then coming back. I think what I found is that the people are what makes the difference, um, that you know more of your neighbors here than you do, although – you know, maybe one of the worst things ever developed were the houses with the, the driveways in the back because you can't, you don't see your neighbors as much. And I, I learned that bigger is not always better. Customer service is not always the same. Uh, creativity may be there, but, but it's not, you're not going to get into it on a more personal level, like a, a restaurant or something like that. I know chefs. I have the opportunity to be in with different kinds of people here more than I would in a larger place where it's hard to find people, you know, this person in a sandbox of sea of sand and you just got one grain you're trying to find. Everybody is more accessible here. Everybody is more accessible. And that's better for storytelling. Did you always intend to come back after you moved away or was was that part of the plan? Um, I I did intend to come back. there were times that I had a resume that I thought I should go apply for larger newspapers, um, but I also figured that, uh, in which newspapers was my first foray into journalism, but I always figured that I would be going down there, getting on a, on a general assignments beat or a cop beat or something like that because those are the entry-level jobs, and, you know, spending all my time driving 
to to someplace that was a scene of a wreck or a traffic jam yeah. or or something and and those kinds of things were not as meaningful to me as what I was doing here. So tell me after you came back here um began working again with the Globe News. Tell me what you did. Because I I have a sense, well I, it's not a sense I have. I I know that the newspaper today is really different it's from what different. it was. It is back then. Different. So give people an idea of what life was like, you know, at the height of what the Globe News was doing. Well, when the before and after when I was at the Globe News, before and immediately after I came back, we had staffs that we had uh, an evening newspaper and a morning newspaper. We had staffs that came in in the morning, um, copy desk that was there at six o'clock with everybody on it already picking national stories to go in. We had deadlines at noon. You had to call in stories and, you know, from meetings. And then you had to turn around and do it again, and you had to get new information for your next story for the, for the evening deadline for the morning paper. Um, we had people who were committed, editors were committed, and ownership that was committed to sending reporters to most every meeting that they could possibly make, things that worked to connect not only the reporters to their beats better, but then the the people, the readers to their community better because you knew what was happening as it was happening and going through the process. You didn't have somebody saying, you know, I, I don't like the ballpark. It, they just came up with it. Um, there were 200 meetings or a couple hundred meetings because I guarantee you we were we were very much at those meetings and uh, when I covered them. might have been reported on. Right. I mean, it wasn't just a suddenly right. this is what we did. Yeah, I made a post last week that on Facebook uh, just a picture of uh, C-SPAN hearing, the one with all the security chiefs nationally. And I'm uh, trying to figure out a way desperately to figure out and, and change why people are not connecting uh, and letting government happen in a vacuum. Register your opinions. Register them early, though, because when you register them late, uh, it, it, it's already down the road, and they're already saying, we've had all these meetings. Um, it's difficult to make sure that you can be there at those things. But if you can't be there, there's a live stream. Be interested enough to give it 30 minutes. Be interested, at least the city council meeting, be interested enough to, to read an article about what's happening. They don't, those articles don't happen as much today or, and it's not considered as daily a story as it was uh, back then, but you can find information. And if you can't, you can ask your representatives. Uh, we've got a legislative session happening right now. Bills are being filed. There are a lot of things that they're talking about at the state level that would be good or bad for Amarillo. And if you don't make your voice heard on that, then we continue operating in that vacuum. And they say, well, I didn't know that you didn't like it because you never told me. How long were you at the Globe News? Um, 27, 28 years, something what, like what that. What was the majority of your beat during that time? Um, mostly two things, mostly, uh, well, three things. I covered city government for many years of that 20-something year period um, and uh, learned what happens in zoning processes and what, ha what happens when all these other things. The thing that you know about that is when they tell you money that they're using for the ballpark can't be used in certain other ways. I know that because I know what the hotel motel tax is revenue is supposed to go to and what it's limited to. 
there are things like that, that just being educated on that part means that you're not necessarily saying, you know, I'd like to change this. You can say, I'd like to change this, but, but haranguing people for spending money where they can't spend it, uh, you know, and preferring to give it to the, to other causes and what those other causes should be when they can't even legally do that is, is barking up the wrong tree, you know, figure out where you can make those adjustments, know enough about it to, to ask people those questions. Then my other, after I came back, I was a feature writer for multiple years, uh, did some, some amazing things to be invited into some times in people's lives when you might not expect to. We did, for example, a, a feature series on um, suicide and, uh, one of my stories had to be men and suicide. And it, as you know, most men don't talk about thoughts mm-hmm. of suicide or their mental health or things like that. So speaking with someone who really told his story and other people who were his support mechanism in that, you're there and you're asking people to be very, very candid and very, very raw with you. And and that's a privilege. And you should take it like one. Knocking on... Um, the home of a family of a fallen soldier. Mm-hmm. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done, but I've done it many times. You are, or many times written that story or an obituary story of some sort. Um, you, you don't start out with, you know, what are you feeling? The best thing to do is ask, tell me about this person. Right. You know, you want them to be memorialized. You want them to be able to say what they want to say. And then if you have some hard questions, which sometimes there are, if it's a political figure or something else, then you've established that you're not going after them by the jugular. You're just trying to reflect on what happened during their career or something. Then for the most part of my latter years at the Globe News, I was involved in business coverage. And uh, that was really new and a chance to see how much is really happening behind the scenes in things like development in Amarillo that nobody knows about, that things are going on to bring new stuff here. Things are, are happening to create new businesses and be creative and put murals in, you know, North Amarillo or do those things that, that take the engagement of the business community to kind of help with sponsorship of that. Yeah, we, we mentioned how the newspaper today is vastly different mm-hmm. from what it was when you were there. Right. Not just in how it operated and having, you know, two editions, morning right. and evening, but the number of employees, the focus on local things. I mean, tell me, I know you're not there anymore, but right. tell me what you see as someone who is still a student of local newspaper journalism. And through no fault of, of um, journalism companies these days, there are things like a centralized copy desk where uh, you have reporters who are in your town trying to tell your town's stories, but the stories that they write are then sent to Austin or uh, Iowa or wherever the base is for their centralized copy desk. And then that copy desk, not knowing what errors to catch in names, for example, you know, the Bivens name, the Ware name, or, or just basic people that people might know here, or street names, uh, or things like that, they don't know to catch some of those. They learn some of that, but they still miss 
what's quintessentially local because in some of those here. words. They're, they haven't grown up here. They're not familiar right. with all of those things. And that shoots your credibility even if you're just, the, you know, you're printing it and putting it out there. The typos, the errors like that, if, if you can't make the smallest errors right, then how do you get the big things right? And it's, it's not always a factor of they were careless. Sometimes it's a factor of not having the editors in the eyes that they need now because there's fewer people. There's fewer people and copy desks are managing not just the Amarillo Globe News's you know, they're, they're managing Lubbock and they're managing somebody else's copy um, through a centralized hub that the corporation has. So for that, for that reason, they're, they're swamped with lots of pages to put out. And you, you may not get the careful, I know my community, you know, this truck wouldn't have been going westbound on this street when this accident happened right. sort of information. Plus, there may have been, you know, during your time, there may have been 10 or 12 sports reporters. Oh, we had we had numerous people. And right now, like the entire staff yeah. is less than that right, number. Right, right. Um, when they moved into one building at the Globe News and basically one floor, I was not there. But I know people who were. And there were if you can fit the newsroom staff into where they were fitting them, uh, that's, that's difficult. It's difficult for everybody. Um, I, I don't fault them for not being able to have people. One of the biggest errors that the newspaper industry made was was not charging people for news online, probably to me. And I'm a reporter. Other people argue it other ways. But um, you were having uh, subscriptions that were not keeping up with the cost of newspapers because we had ads to sponsor them. Well, it's the, you know, it's the circle. You have ads that drop out. Um, because they're not getting the numbers of eyeballs in front of them. You have readers who are not wanting to pay for that, and they think the news is free. I should have gotten it for free all along mm-hmm. when it was other people who were paying for them with their ads. So it it developed a difficult conundrum, not that I think you should go up you know, in huge amounts because access to news needs to be available. And so paywalls and other things like that are difficult for that reason. There's also, you know, the arguments constantly about what should be behind a paywall and what shouldn't. And there are many papers, for example, in New Orleans or disaster areas where they suspend paywalls during that time period so that people can get the news of where relief is uh, and that sort of thing. It's hard. Herford Brand just announced that it was going to cease publication. That's another place that will lose somebody going to meetings and letting people know what's happening, whether it's whether it's something you would like or something you wouldn't like, you know, or simple, we can't cover the cost of the utilities and to do this project that's going to make water better for everyone. We have to do it. So we're going to have to raise rates, something like that, to give people the understanding, at least if you're going to raise my fees, why? And is that something that benefits me? Or is it something I should argue against? We don't have that yeah. as much in every place that we should now. When did you begin thinking about a career shift, or at least leaving behind that, you know, that newspaper journalism? When did that start to happen? Well, um, two things probably. I mean, it was just we were diehards. My husband also is uh, worked for the paper, and he's still in the news business at News Channel Ten, and we both saw that 
our ability to be responsible to the community to the level that we wanted to probably wasn't going to be available. Um, we were doing more and more. We could cover things less and less and as less in depth unless we worked 60 hours a week doing something and, and trying to make that work. The more you work at it, the more they want all of it. And the more you've shown them that you, you can do all of it, right. you just can do it on your own time. So it was that was part of the reason. The other reason is just that uh, it's time to try new things. One thing the internet taught us about journalism is if you can't reinvent yourself over and over and over again, you better find another line. And I know that's happening in, in all kinds of careers, but it's really happening in journalism. And if you don't figure out how to make transitions and do things you weren't comfortable with doing before, uh, learn new technology, all of those things, you're going to get left behind. And and what you're trying to bring to people is irrelevant because you're not bringing it to them in a format where they're consuming it. So tell me about the change to Panhandle PBS and how, how that came about and, and what you ended up doing. Um, I began here by just kind of getting thrown in on the Live Here program that uh, – Panhandle PBS already had going. Uh, it was a half-hour format, sometimes an hour. A lot of issues that were being talked about, but also feature kind of things, too, or demographics, you know, really getting to the diversity of the, of the community or that kind of thing. Um, we are still doing that in lots of ways. We are doing lots of different things. One of them is a series we call The Handle. It is online now. Episodes, shorter episodes of that are online. There will be longer segments that may find their way into a new TV show at some point. Um, we are telling the stories about the characters and communities uh, of the region because we think about the panhandle and what it encompasses, but we don't know. We just did one about uh, a Bollywood, a couple that does Bollywood dancing. Uh, they were in Bollywood movies before they immigrated here. So... You get all the different flavors of what is making up Amarillo instead of just, you know, the same usual suspects. The work you do here, does it feel like a reinvention to you or just an extension of the reporting you were doing into, you know, radio and podcasts and, you know, TV programming? It, right. How, how does that feel to you? It's an extension. It's, well, it's, it's, a, it's layering more senses on. Okay. You know. Layering audio in, layering video in, showing people what words can mean in a visual context. It's not just community boosting. It's about just bringing things to the forefront that people here might need to know, want to know, people they need to know, love to know, you know, would love to meet. Um, people who are doing good things in the community and, and issues that really matter that have been talked about in some way for a long time, but trying to get to you know, the grassroots of it. I want to ask you, as someone who has reported on this area, you know, in some form or fashion for, what, 25, 30 years? Yeah. Don't want to date you too much. But <laughs> no, it's all right. I, I date myself. This this is a really exciting time in Amarillo in that it seems like a lot of things are happening. Exactly. Um, in terms of redevelopment, new businesses, the city council is making some big decisions. A lot of things are happening yes. in the ballpark. Yes. Um, you know, just having been around all of that world for so long, what what perspective do you have on what's happening right now here in this area? 
Are you excited about it? I mean, do do you see the potential or do you see like this is we've been sort of leading this direction for a long time and finally I, I'm seeing some of that. I'm seeing sometimes things that we've talked about for years that went on the front burner and back off the front burner, depending upon, uh, you know, ability to pay for it or, or need or just political fortitude to, to do it or even political um, fortitude against it happening. Either way, I've seen all of those changes. So I've kind of been where the sausage is being made. But I still love to see the outcome. I was going to say, does does having seen the sausage get made, does that make you more cynical maybe about the process or more of a realist about what's happening? A realist, but um, but I'm born and raised here, and that's one thing. I'm a realist, but I'm I'm excited when it works. I'm I'm happy when things work, and I'm happy when you know I. I agree that there are lots of different opinions. There's no, you know, they've they've always said there's two sides to every story. There are 50 sides to every story. Uh, you know, everybody has a different reason for believing something will work, for believing that it won't. And when you get the conversation that is genuine about all those reasons, um, that is that is not about well, I'm only this way and I'm not going to listen to you. It's the same thing we, we have happening on a national scale. That is frustrating when you cover it and that happens, when the, the lock happens and, and nothing goes on except two sides that can't find some way to compromise. Right. But when you get everybody kind of taking a little bit out of it and trying to, you know, mitigate a problem or, or see something through better and improve it or or just even explain it better so that more people understand it that's that's the sweet spot right there tell me about panhandle pbs uh just in terms of what you found here as a culture i mean going from you know the the hustle and grind of a newsroom to like a publicly funded broadcast studio that's that's a different world it is a different world um we in both places uh the people that I work with are family. The people that I work with, you you work on all kinds of things at all hours of the day or night, media, and and people know how much you worked just to get somebody to give you a quote about something. They see the effort that you put in it, and that may be the only place you'll ever hear the good part, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, and then we have just the capacity to do things is is so much better. Not necessarily that that I couldn't do the stories that I wanted to someplace else. I, I did every story I wanted to, and very uh, I rarely had interference. And some stories you probably didn't want to, and some stories I didn't want to. But the capacity to take time with something, or to put four people in a room and do a forum on it or to lead a Q&A and do some moderating as I, I've done for the NAACP and the recent State of the Economy, to do some of those things feels like we're making that community connection that's not happening so much anymore um, just between people and their governments, people and their um, diversity groups and their diversity issues, all of those things. We're well suited to be a conduit for that. And I, I want to ask about that community connection, um, from having been involved in so many different things, from the government to 
business and entrepreneurship and, and now the personal stories that you're being able to tell, you know, you've, you've lived here all your life. What strikes you still about this community and the people who live here, the people who have chosen, you know, to, to build their lives here? They stop on the street and they say hello. They um, mostly really listen to you when you're talking. They want to explain the benefits or the drawbacks of something if you just give them an opportunity to do so. They want to have their opinion reflected, and they are not, they're not really so much against the idea of someone else's opinion also being reflected next to theirs. As long as you give people a chance to be heard, that's what's important, and that's what's important to this community in a lot of ways with a lot of these projects that we're talking about. As I mentioned earlier, this episode is sponsored by SKP Creative, and their sponsorship comes courtesy of my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash where individual listeners like you can support the show on a monthly basis. Now, what you may or may not know about me is that I'm a self-employed professional writer. I do contract work for businesses at an hourly rate. Now, producing this podcast for free every week takes up a lot of those hours. It takes me several hours per episode, which is why I try to get sponsors for the show. It pays the bills. One of my other methods of support is through Patreon, which offers support tiers for individuals or businesses like SKP. So if you appreciate this free weekly product, whether you have a business, whether you're just a person at home listening to a podcast, regardless, you can support the show too. So to learn more, go to patreon.com slash That's Patreon with an E. Okay, I'm back with Karen Welch of Panhandle PBS. Karen, this is the part of the show I call eight straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in whatever degree of detail you'd like to. Let's start, and this is one that I uh, I have not asked anyone else. Well, maybe I asked John Mark Ballou. I'm not sure about this one. But okay. What's the most memorable story you covered as a journalist? Probably in recent history uh, would be the Columbia tragedy. The That space shuttle had Rick Husband on it, the Amarillo astronaut. It also had Willie McCool on it, who was from Lubbock. And that morning, I got on a plane to Houston uh, with a photographer and we went to Houston, and first thing you're thinking is, okay, national media is piling in. They had an Israeli astronaut. They had they had people from all areas and projects from all areas on this flight. So what could, you know, the Amarillo Globe News do that was different? Right. And uh, you find a way, and you find a way with, with many different contacts. Um, I wanted to speak with uh, Rick Husband's mother. So the first thing I was trying to do was call, um, I called my mom and said she goes to Polk Street Methodist Church, which has been the home church of my family for years. So we started brainstorming about who knew, you know, Mrs. Husband in the church. And then we found another friend at the church who I talked to that didn't know how to get a hold of his mother, but knew how to get a hold of the crew secretary because she'd met her many times. The woman's name is Rosalind Hobgood. She's uh, the her crew called her the Great and Wonderful Roz. Hmm. She lives in Houston still, and she was the connection point, the main point that ha- handled all the 
staff needs and things of the whole crew of seven. And so my interview with her, we met her at a, at a coffee shop late that evening. Uh, I had called her and, and somehow convinced her that, you know, tell your story. And she spoke about not losing one person all at once, but losing seven. Yeah. She had stories about every astronaut. She knew every one of them personally on a different, each on different levels and, and could tell something personal about each one of them. And we talked for a good two and a half, three hours. Um, Then I had to come back on a plane and write that. But before I did, we we cruised around um, to the memorials. There were the makeshift memorials that you always see pop up and people were laying things at the gate of Johnson Space Center. And we ran into Willie McCool's family Hmm. there. And, you know, if you keep your ears and eyes open because they were there to see what had been placed out there, but they weren't really talking to anybody or looking any different than anybody else. It was just something that they kind of said or did that made me think they're related. And so I went over and talked to them and they gave us another interview. And Roz then connected us with uh, multiple other people from the a special section that we did from the trainer that took them on a survival camping trip um, to all different kinds of people that had interaction with them. So instead of being just what can Amarillo do and go down and, and cover, you know, the memorial or the press conferences or things like that, we wound up with stories that other large media units didn't have. And we told their story. And does that, and this is just a question I have because I know a lot of listeners might have this question. You know, you're you're at, let's say, the a makeshift memorial. Mm-hmm. You get a sense that that's the McCool family there. Does it feel like personally for you? I, I know you're doing a job, but is there ever a hesitation? Like, I need to go talk to them, but they're clearly having a moment. This is a hard time. I don't want to be disruptive, but I want to do my job. I mean, how do you deal with all of those things? As a journalist, you pace around for a while, <laughs> and then you decide steal up the nerve. Yeah, to, to do and it. then you decide to go over. But your your best opening is just you know, I'm who I am, and you know, don't tell them, don't tell them another job that you do or anything else. Tell them who you are, exactly why you're there. I was there as you know, as a journalist, and wanted to see what people were laying out in front of this the entrance at the space center. And why I'm there and and the fact that Rick Husband was from our community and we want to honor him and honor the people that he was with. And in that way, you know, if you're related to him, would you talk? If they had said no, if they had said not right now, um, you know, then I wouldn't have done it. I would have said you know, I mean, the most I could say is that they confirmed and I would tell them, can I say that you were here and that you were here, you know, and just report that fact? Or there's there's always a way maybe to say that much that they would be comfortable with. But you would you don't gain by forcing because some of the people that I did talk to within a day or two were people that initially told me they didn't want to talk. Right. Okay. Shifting gears from that story, mm-hmm. um, what's what's your all-time favorite PBS program? You're you're now working, you know, for the 
the larger company, I guess, in a sense. I know it's all member stations right, and it's right. a loose relation, but you know that that's responsible for Sesame Street and mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers and things like that. I mean, tell me, um, tell me about the PBS programming that was important to you. I like the history, anything that's the history, um, because I just really think that PBS has a stable of stations and producers that create uh, memorable ways to bring history to life, whether it's Masterpiece or even Antiques Roadshow. And that's probably, you know, I'm a a junkie for that because, you know, Kevin and I, my husband, are always... uh, sitting in the room when the Antiques Roadshow is going on and somebody gets a great estimate for something that's really not too attractive and maybe they don't really love it that much and the first thing we yell at is, sell it, you know. Um, it's just, it's amazing all the little things and how much they mean and how much they mean to groups of collectors that you don't think there's a group of collectors that collects that. Yeah. I'd, I'd have no idea. Um, the other one, you know, is finding your roots because okay. because I like the... Uh, connections that they make uh, back through time and how far they can actually go. It's amazing. And then uh, back to a question I ask of all of my guests, what does this area have too much of? It has too much of a lack of understanding about how good it is. Okay. Unpack that for me. What does that mean? You know, the first thing you hear a project and you say, oh, we'll never pull that off. You know, or the ballpark, it'll, you know, it'll never make money or the hotel, it'll never happen. Or, and I know I'm going to those because they're recent examples, but, you know, even we'll never get cool restaurants. You know, we'll never do this. We'll never do that. Like we have a small minded perspective of yeah. who we are, maybe, right. or what's possible. Right. Um, and, and things are possible. And, you know, you talk about you live here because of this, this, and this, and then you turn around and say, Oh, Amarillo and talk bad about it. What is the, what's the point? Yeah. I mean, I understand not everything's rosy in Amarillo. There's no community where it is. So taking that off the table, you don't have to be a cheerleader, but you also don't have to say there's nothing to do because my, you know, my colleague Chip Chandler has a calendar full of things to do. Um, There are all kinds of things that are out there if you just look around and Amarillo is getting more diverse, having more options, having more options for different ages. Although, you know, the options of things to do for younger folks should definitely start to be, to rise to the top of importance uh, because we, we need them. But I just think that we could be kinder about ourselves. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Oh, that's difficult, too, except I think it's participation. It's kind of the flip side of what I was telling you before. Um, You have an event that's supposed to talk about, uh, you know, some new road project or or development or art exhibit in North Heights that's supposed to start helping that neighborhood get a boost or, or any of those kinds of things. And people hear about it. They see it on Facebook as an event or whatever, but they don't go. It's kind of like airline service. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. Yeah. And it's not just about participating in your government. It's about participating in your community. You know, it's about knowing that the NAACP is doing some forum on on the opioid epidemic, which they did last year, and why it's important maybe for you to learn that. If we don't start building that that beehive to where everybody is working 
and trying to participate and bring things along with them and make things better where they see weaknesses and things like that, it's going to be difficult. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Uh, well, I hate the, you know, when the New York Times or and I love, don't get me wrong, I love big newspapers because I have ink in my blood, but I hate when they come and they start out with we're dusty and we're cowboys and we, you know, everything has to have boots on it or sunsets. So those are probably not the ways that I would describe, but it's just, as I said before, is people. It's how you can walk in and say, hey, I need help with something and somebody will do it. It's how you can um, move to a community and somebody brings you something. I just moved, brings you something to your door. I have a lovely poinsettia from December when I moved into my new house. So uh, there are all kinds of ways that people here reach out to each other. And I think we tend to isolate ourselves, you know, watch things we want to watch, stay home, don't meet your neighbor on the driveway, those sorts of things. I think we need to do more of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that people want to do more of it. And I think that the people here probably do it more than in a lot of other places. When was the last time you went to Paladuro Canyon? I have to say it's too, it's been too long. Uh, I used to go practically every summer, especially when I was a kid. I had, um, I guess now, you know, they're not called Saturday fathers, but my dad and mom were divorced. Uh, so a lot of times he was always looking for something for us to do right. on Saturdays. And so, you know, every summer that would be a, a place to go. Uh, I have been on recent occasions to do stories mm -hmm. there and that requires spending some time, but it's not really like being out and doing my own you're thing. You're disconnected a little bit because yeah. you're, you're yeah. working. Right, right. That's the challenge of the business. You're always an observer and sometimes you want to play. Uh, as a reporter um, and, and working within the culture and arts and all those things, you've had the opportunity to write about a lot of different restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to ask you, what's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? Yeah. No, no, no. You can't do that, or no, can you? No. I am, I am not built to give opinions. I am built to lay things out there and let people decide on okay. their own. <laughs> so I, I, I knew that that may be a possibility going in, so I'm prepared with a backup question. Uh -oh. What's your favorite genre of restaurant in Amarillo? So what do you think... You know, thinking of different types of food, different ethnicities, what does Amarillo do best? Now, see, that's hard, too. And see, I didn't tell you that one in advance. You no, couldn't even prepare for no, that. No, that's hard, too, because I, okay, I love the high-end experience and what, um, and what you get as far as tasting new ingredients, new different combinations of ingredients, seeing the beautiful plating, uh, having the experience of... A, a longer dinner, which means more conversation with somebody. Than, which we're getting a lot more of now right, than we've right. ever had. So I love that. But I'm also partial to the, the dives and the small, you know, taco stands on 3rd and places out on Emerald Boulevard and, and all of those for their diversity and their feeling of when you walk in, you know it's this person and their mom and their brother and everybody in the family that has to come work to make that work, and they love doing it. So I guess it's about what I love about the restaurant scene in Amarillo is not as much the scene as the experiences okay. that they bring. 
I'll let you off with, with that very general <laughs> answer because it's it's one that uh, that you've earned. Okay, so. thank you. Um, okay, so this is this is the final one. I don't know if you'll answer this one or not either, but I'll try it. Are are you Team Packasack or Team Toot and Totem? Which one are you more likely to visit? Nope. Neither one. <laughs> All right. Such an ethical journalist. I there are still a lot of people that don't know that I have opinions about anything. So. I, you know, I, I respect your, your commitment to, to the craft. Well, um, it's important. If people knew I had any positions about something, they would change. It would change how they interact with me. And I want them to tell me what they think, mm-hmm. not what they think I want to hear or, or argue against what I believe or anything like that. I want them. I want to hear them. I'm not the story they are. And see, that's that's an opinion, uh, not an opinion, but that, that's a reality that does not surprise me for someone uh, working at a newspaper, say, where it is a very just the facts kind right. of environment. Your job now is a little bit looser, maybe, you mm-hmm. know, because it's so diverse in the, the different mediums that, right. that you're working within. Um, but you still feel like that sort of uh, disconnect from any sort of opinion, any sort of leaning or bias is still really important to it's, what you do. It's crucial. The reason we have a divide is because you've got MSNBC, CNN, Fox News that have what people understand as news shows. But when so-and-so comes on at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock, the first thing's out of their mouth really sound like opinions as they bring on their panelists. And then their panelists who aren't journalists get confused with journalists right. because they are they're there to have a debate. And at one point that was a good idea to to have people with different opinions having a debate. But when when our viewers don't have the opportunity to know who's coming from which sides and why their view is skewed, uh then it's really crucial for the person moderating that to do that. And if you have those moderators, those show hosts that are giving their opinions as they start, you can't trust them. You can't trust the moderation. That's a good answer. Well, thank you. I, uh, I, I was curious whether I'd, I'd get anything out of you if I just had to push past it and go to something else. But I, <laughs> I feel like that's a good point to make. So well done with that. Okay, um, thank you. Karen, that concludes the... Pass the, the test? <laughs> you passed the test. Uh, I won't have to edit anything out. Um, so that concludes the eight straight uh, portion of the show. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something locally. So what is something that you would want listeners to know about or to experience related to this area? The diversity, I go back to that. Okay. Uh, we think, and because the New York Times or somebody else thinks we're dusty and cowboy and all that, we think we're, you know, white, middle class down all these same pathways. We are Indian, we are Burmese, we are Somalian, we are Mexican, we are Honduran, we are all of those things. And the more you realize how, how to use the old worn out phrase, the, the tapestry that gives mm-hmm. us, and the way that that could broaden uh, our horizons on all levels, we need to just understand that. And that's what I think I would sell to other people is it will a communi- be a community that em- that embraces you as long as we really are the community that looks at all of those differences and says, great, come on, join us. So I would sell it because I would hope that it sells itself. Okay. Well, Karen Welch, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to SKP Creative for sponsoring the show and especially to Karen Welch at Pen Handle PBS for the interview. If you thought this episode sounded better than others, uh, you're right, for one thing. That's because we recorded it in the Panhandle PBS and FM90 studios with FM90's Amy Hart manning the board. So uh, this is probably the most professional this podcast will ever sound. Uh, anyway, thank you, Amy. Uh, I, I do appreciate it. Executive producers of Hammerillo include Neil Nossiman, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Daniel Davis, and Wilson Lemieux. You can be one of those names. You can help produce the show, too, by visiting patreon.com slash Thank you for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.